Good morning. Again, happy Mother's Day. It's uh, it's a fun holiday where you actually stop and you're like, hey, mom, thank you. Um, I am aware now at my age of everything I put you through and thank you and I'm sorry and thanks. It's amazing how much your perspective changes as you go through life where you start to notice all the uh, nine million things, and that's a low estimate that your mother and father do for you as a child. It's kind of baffling. But I can say as a parent that it's uh, also amazing to be on that end of it as well. Of all the things I've gotten to participate in, uh, parenthood has been by far the most meaningful part of this so far. So um, I was once in, it was lovingly done, but it still stung a little bit. I was once confronted after a Mother's Day sermon I gave before I was pastor. I got to preach on a Mother's Day, actually two Mother's Days in a row. Um, and someone lovingly pulled me aside and said, I didn't come to church to worship your mother. Because apparently I went a little overboard on the mommy stuff, but I'm a mama's boy, so it can happen. Um, and if you looked at the sermon title and got nervous, be like, that doesn't even say Mother's Day on it. I haven't forgotten about the mothers. Don't worry. Um, I am going to continue on with uh, <laughs> the uh, outline I'm using, which is a Confession of Faith and a Mennonite Perspective. But I honestly think that this lends itself really well to Mother's Day. It's discipleship in Christian life. Now, I know when we think of discipleship, we have a tendency to think of a group of men that follow Jesus around. But if you look at what discipleship is, I think you get a very clear view that most of your early life discipleship, if not well into your adult years, actually did come from your mother. Just let that sit for a second. All of those things, because discipleship, honestly, is following someone and learning how to live, learning how to worship learning how to live. I said that once already, but I want to emphasize it. And if you ever watch a child, which I'm doing right now because she's sweet. Um, if you ever watch a child, that's really what they do. So they follow their parents around. They follow their mothers around particularly because there's a bond between a child and their mother. That even though like, I, I was a very present father, I still am. I'm not a mother, nor was I designed to be one, nor am I capable of being one, right? There's certain things that uh, my daughter is always going to look to mom for, and praise God for that, honestly. As we go, I realize there's just a lot of things that I am ill-equipped to address. Um, anyhow, so that was a really long introduction to say, welcome, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. That is uh, from Micah 6.8, and honestly, it's a great summation for the second part of our title, Christian life. What does Christian life look like? Well, I can pull from here. I could also pull from the book of James. It says, pure religion is visiting the widow's and the fatherless in their time of, or in their affliction. 
But I think this shows us also a very clear view of what Christian life looks like. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. I think as Americans, as Christian Americans, we still have a tendency to add unnecessary adjectives to things. Right? Sometimes we say something like, uh, and I'm going to pick on this term because it rubs me the wrong way, and I'll explain why. So I'm not attacking anything other than this term. It bothers me. Sometimes people say things like social justice, and I know what they mean. And a lot of people that say that phrase mean, well, some of them even do well. So it's not that bad people use that term. I just hate it. Social justice. It refers to society, so it does have a reason. It focuses it. But in my head, where a lot of things are still very much in black and white, we have justice and we have injustice. And I really don't think it needs to be any cloudier than that. Because to do justice, that's what God called us to do. To do injustice is sinful. And I know that we live in a world of shades of gray. So it gets very hard to separate those two. But honestly, to do injustice is a sin. And I don't want it to be any cloudier than that. To do justice is to do the will of God. To do injustice is sinful. You can attack me about that later. I don't mind. I'm not making that statement blindly. I've been thinking about it for years now. Because at one point I would have told you I'm incredibly... uh, interested in social justice. Maybe. I suppose it depends on how you're throwing that word around. I believe that we should treat all people as image bearers of a loving creator. And to do that is my part in doing justice. So in that way, yes, I'm very interested. But I also feel like it clouds it to a place that it doesn't need to be clouded. And I think Micah 6.8 spells out what justice, what is required of us. Justice, mercy, and to walk humbly. It's so easy to get proud of things and to become proud of ideas and shared ideologies and things like that. And like most good things that's based, or most bad things, it's based in a good place that's run amok. Have I harped on that enough for this morning? You're like, get back to mothers. We love our mothers. I do too. I do too. Um, I'm actually going to start out in Joshua 24. And you'll notice I put three chapters of Scripture without any verse references whatsoever. Did anybody notice that? Is anybody scared? I didn't preach for two weeks. You've got... I'm not going to try to make up for all of that in one day, I don't think. We'll see what happens. But we're in Joshua 24, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, although initially I was planning to. All right. This is where uh, the children of Israel are actually in the promised land, and Joshua is addressing them. Right? And he's telling them to put away their foreign gods, the gods that they worshipped back in Egypt, and to follow the Lord which is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which we know is best translated by us as Yahweh or Jehovah, but it's the ineffable name of God. It is God, 
as we refer to him, God. Put away all these little g-gods and worship the true God. That's what he's saying. He's like, or just decide who you're worshiping. Decide who you will follow. Are you going to follow these foreign gods or are you going to follow the Lord God, right? And I believe I'm going to start at verse 13. I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities for which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and the olive groves, which you did not plant. And therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. I want to highlight those words too. And in, in sincerity, not insincerity, but in space, sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord is our God. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. That seems like a strange turn. He's telling them to commit to serving the Lord. They're like, we'll serve the Lord. And he's like, you can't do it. <laughs> anyway, you cannot serve the Lord. For he is a holy God and a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. For if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself. You have chosen the Lord's for yourselves to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. What you have here, and I know we've all, well, not all of us, but most of us have heard Rob preach on this passage of Scripture too, so I don't want to repeat verbatim a very good sermon that was not given by me. Um, but what you have is someone telling people, as for me and my house, that's the powerful part that gets the placard that you can order at a Christian book distributor and put in your wall. And I would recommend that you do that if you have extra currency laying around and like things on your wall. But put it on your heart. That costs you nothing and everything, but it costs you nothing just to have that resonating in your chest. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's also a flavor about that passage where Joshua knows these people because he's watched them. And because they're people and people have been people and they've always been people and we're fickle. And we have crisis of faith when we don't get our way or when things get rough and we just 
are always looking for something or we're worshiping in a strange way, which oddly enough is a big deal. But he looks at this group of people that means well at this moment, knowing you can't do it. But me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I think we can kind of pull from that too. If we were to don't do it right now, it'll create drama. But if you were to look around the church and you would, because we judge each other, let's be honest, sometimes you assess things. It's actually how God designed your brain so that you can survive by discriminating things and deciding this is safe, this is hostile, right? God designed your brain that way. We're not to judge each other harsher than we would judge ourselves. We're not to hold each other down. So don't take this the wrong way. But if you were to take assessment of the Christians in your life, not in this room, of course, but take assessment of the Christians in your life and wonder what their level of commitment is. Or if you felt that they were going to, in fact, endure to the end. There's something about this where it could encourage you to say, that may be so, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I think that is, is really the cornerstone of Christian life is deciding, making that commitment that no matter what goes on around you, no matter what goes on even within your church, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I also want to point out what Joshua didn't do is he didn't go grab his family and move away from the people. He stayed in that community. And he worshipped within that community of God's people. Although his greater commitment seems to be, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I think that's very applicable as parents. Mothers, it's your day, so I'll say as mothers, with, with, with your husbands. Um... To say that, to make that kind of commitment. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to worship in this church. We're going to be part of the bigger body. We're going to corporately worship. But as for me and my house, we're not going to be swayed by whatever goes through. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, that's like I said, that's kind of fundamental. That's a that's the first step. It doesn't end there. Any more than... It ends that you accepted Jesus when you were 12 years old. I'll celebrate that with you, but then what? What happened then? There's a whole lifetime that happens and continues to happen from that moment where you declare, Oh God, you are my God and I will ever praise you. There is a moment where everything changes and we should celebrate that. And that is a coming to faith. And if you want to tell me the day you were born again, I want to hear it. It's no less important because I'm saying the rest of this. If that's the only testimony you have is that you accepted Jesus when you were four. You're either being modest. Or you forgot to run this race. Because this is where we start. It's no less important, though. Every journey begins with the first step. You're not even on the right path until you surrender to Jesus. So I'm not discounting that. If you have not given your life to Jesus, do it now. Life is short, and it gets shorter every breath you take. 
Give your life to Jesus. But that is the first step. That isn't the end. That isn't the whole journey. If you bought a house, if you went out this afternoon and you bought a house, what's it going to look like if you put no effort into it? You don't take care of it. You never mow your lawn. You never knock the cobwebs down. You never clean up the dust. You don't sweep it. What's going to happen? It's going to fall apart. It might even fall down. It's a glorious thing to buy a new home. It's amazing. There's work that goes into it just to preserve the house. You're not rebuilding the house. Every time you spill a glass of water, someone doesn't come in and take your house away. But you got to clean it up. You got to preserve it. You've got to got to maintain it. You got to improve it. That was a strange metaphor. It was top of the head. I hope you'll forgive me. Um, next place I'm moving on to actually is is Matthew seven, and I just proclaim that we judge each other, and then I'm turning to the chapter that talks about don't judge, and then oddly enough, not reading that section this morning, I am aware of what it says. Don't judge. Now I almost have to address it, but don't judge. When it says that, you don't stop there. It says don't judge. That you not, or judge not that you not be judged, right? For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. That whole thing is about clean yourself up and then help your brother. It doesn't say let them go. Only God can judge me. That should scare you. That shouldn't be the phrase people run to when they feel like people are being too harsh with them. Only God can judge me. Really? That should terrify you. Because if your finite friend in their little sphere can see something wrong in your life, what does a holy God see? Hopefully when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, because I'm a train wreck. And depending on your level of honesty this morning, you probably are too. But I'm a redeemed train wreck. That's the difference. God uses imperfection, and it brings glory to him. If I was perfect, well, that's a ridiculous thing to even say. If I was even good, there's none good. I'm not even good. Anyhow, I'm going to start at verse... Uh, 13. Just seems like a good verse to start on this morning, I guess. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The easy way is the wrong way, isn't it? If you're just going through life. It's probably the wrong way. I learned something this week, and it was extra biblical, so I hope you'll forgive me. 
uh, it was a motivational speech. I rarely listen to those, but I got caught up in one where someone is explaining the direct correlation between responsibility and meaning. If you live a life devoid of responsibility, then your life inherently has little to no meaning. And I'd never thought of that before. If you avoid responsibilities, you are making zero impact or negative impact. It's strange. Most of you probably have a lot more responsibilities than you think you do. So this isn't an accusation, but I just found that strange. But that seems to be our, our societal go-to is I don't want responsibility. I'm not taking responsibility for that. Not my circus, not my monkeys, right? Anyhow, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits, which you would be able to see and discern. I'm not calling that judgment, but that seems fairly synonymous, does it not? Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. That's almost a tongue twister in New King James. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Most terrifying verse in the Bible. Are you ready? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. That is an interesting verse, is it not? That verse used to terrify me. Absolutely terrify me. Made me shake in my little Armenian boots. Not because I'm Armenian, just theologically I was Armenian as a child. Um, I truly believed every time I sinned, I was now going to hell. And I'm not sure anyone ever taught me that explicitly. But that is a terrifying way to live. Because sometimes I can't get out of bed before my mind is sinning already. All it takes is for the dog to put her Kong, that shoe toy, right there, where you step out of bed and you step on that rolly thing and you start to move. I had an interesting occurrence yesterday where the dog was laying on the blanket and I was trying to get off of bed, which is far less graceful than it was in my 20s. Um, and my leg was in the blanket, which, big deal, right? The blanket's going to come with me. No, it wasn't, because the dog was pinning the blanket down. So there I am hopping on one leg, spinning circles like some sort of crippled ballerina. And by the grace of God, I did not fall. But I'm not sure that my thought patterns were incredibly wholesome as my entire bulk hung in the balance. Because the floor hurts now. Never used to. As you get older, floors get harder. I learned that. 
But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom. Those who do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? Well, that was our opening verse. At least in part, was our opening verse. What is the will of the Father? To act justly. To love mercy. Not to reluctantly do mercy, but to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. And then in verse 22, it names all these works. Haven't I done all this good work? Haven't I earned my way into heaven? That's how I read that now. It's not because you're not supposed to do good works. If you are trying to find your salvation in doing good works, you're not doing anything. You're spinning your wheels. You might make the world a little bit better, more comfortable. I affirm that. Good, do good things. We're supposed to do good things. If you're relying on your good works to be your salvation, you've forgotten Jesus already. If you are inspired through your love of Jesus to love your fellow man and do good works, that is worship. If you are inspired to earn your salvation by doing the right amount of good works, that's paganism. Don't do it. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell. And it was a great and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. The whole reason why I am completely blessed, maybe no, it's not the whole reason. That was a misstatement. It was the mother of all misstatements on Mother's Day. One of the primary reasons why I get to do this, I get to do this, is because I have a godly mother and father who made sure that regardless of whatever drama, and there was plenty, whatever hardships, and there was more than our fair share if you're looking for fair, they made sure that everything was about building a house on a rock, being a lighthouse on a hill is the term that they enjoy so much. If you notice, well, if you know where my parents live, they even have one of those little, I can never think of it, I want to say Kubla Khan, but I know that's not right, one of those little boxes on the top of their garage that reminds me of a lighthouse. It reminds them of a lighthouse too. Does anybody know the word for that? Kubelo. It's not Kubla Khan. He was vicious. A cubelo. It's just one of those little spires that kind of reminds you of a lighthouse or a church, but they put one on their garage on purpose because they always said they wanted to be the lighthouse on the hill. So they built their house on a hill. Now they have their light shining. It's, it's 
if you know me in ways you know my parents. Because the good things about me mostly are my parents or my wife. Most certainly the Holy Spirit, if it's really good. But that's one of the things that I had was a foundation because my parents wanted us to build on Jesus, right? Everything was through a biblical worldview and I tried to do everything else and I got mad at God and I tried to do things my way and then I became very mad at God and then I had a total misunderstanding of what God wanted. All of that. When I fell flat, and I did, and it hurt, and it still hurts, and it's embarrassing to think about. But I landed solidly on a rock. <laughs> because I had this example that my parents live, right? My parents are not perfect. They're human beings. They're not perfect. They do some things incredibly well. And like the rest of us, they do other things less well. Right? The only thing I can think of that my parents do poorly is I've gotten directions from my father and he says words I don't understand like north and east. And I don't know. I don't know what direction east is unless the sun is rising. And I know what west is when the sun is setting. Take a left at Dairy Queen. I know what you're saying, right? This is how you can tell I never really lived in Nebraska because they know their directions there. But what we almost never think about really is why are you on church on Sunday morning? There's a good chance that you're in church on Sunday morning because your parents brought you to church when you were a child. There's a really good chance. Even if it was infrequently, your parents probably brought you to church or they took time to thank God when something major happened. Or they taught you the difference between right and wrong and later you found Jesus. But there is actually an element of discipleship just in the fact that you were taught right from wrong. However, that's a heavy burden because this is also where your children learn to stretch the truth. Now, they know how to do it from birth. I'm not putting that on moms, please. But I notice once they get to about fifth or sixth grade, sixth grade, definitely sixth grade, I've noticed that the children that have a tendency to say, I forgot my homework at home when I know they didn't do it, are usually related to the parents that will tell me that they were, uh, they had another obligation or they were running late or something else that is a little white lie, just a little white lie. That too is discipleship. That's negative effects of discipleship.
that's improper discipleship. In fact, it almost brings together imagery of millstones, doesn't it? You're causing one of these little ones to stumble. Did you teach your child to lie? It's kind of scary. Did you teach your child to blaspheme when you stubbed your toe? We almost never apply that. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better if you were had a millstone hung around your neck and were drowned in the depths of the sea. I usually use that verse when I'm speaking about real atrocities of child abuse and broken homes and things like that. And it applies. But much like the rest of Scripture, there's more application than face value as well. What am I teaching to my daughter? What are you teaching to your sons? What are you teaching these children? Children find God a very simple concept to understand because they're not jaded yet. They see the world for the beauty and the miracle that it is. And they're in love with it. They're in love with learning. They're in love with seeing God at work. That's children's neutral setting. I think the biggest responsibility in discipling children is not ruining that. Children are so much closer than we are in the fact that their natural setting is to worship God. And you lose that as you go. Now, because of their human nature, I'm not saying that they're all good. Because one of the very first thing a child does is it screams selfishly, correct? And then after that, it learns to lie because it doesn't want to be in trouble. And it's usually over something silly. And the thing that I've always struggled with as, a, as an educator is where does imagination end and lying begin with small children? I still don't have the answer to that one. Because imagination is good and healthy and it stimulates brain growth. Lying is a sin. I'm not sure where one ends and the other begins. Certainly by the age of 12, though, you should be able to tell me this is a work of fiction and then proceed to tell me you forgot your homework at home when you really didn't do it. I might at least give you credit for cleverness and give you a little grace. The last place that I'm flipping to this morning, <laughs> Philippians, when uh, Wesley was in Bible memory, I would have him remember that as Philippi man's, and I drew a little picture of a guy doing a cartwheel, just a little mnemonic advice, Philippians. And if you have trouble finding that in your New Testament, because I'm a teacher, I'm going to share things you don't want to know sometimes. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they're all grouped together. Go eat peaches and cream. In case you didn't know that. All right, I'm in Philippians 3. 
before I read Philippians 3, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that you're going to hear a lot of sermons from me when I get through this series about discipleship and Christian living. They're not going to be titled that. But discipleship is crucial to being a Christian. You might not call it that, but I think we should. You're going to hear a lot of sermons about discipleship from me. And you've been warned. Okay, uh, chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more. Then he goes down his pedigree and his lists of things that make him a good Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the laws of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. Again, Paul illustrates something very exhaustively here that you are not saved by your good works. You're not saved by your family. All of that can be helpful particularly that family, Paul. But what things were gained to me, these things I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, as I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I suffered and lost of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, do not count, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forget those things which are behind and reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in, the following, in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Excuse me. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, 
whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. All right. I think it's very clear when Paul writes this letter, he is just simply saying all of this, all of these bells and whistles, all of this pedigree, all of these, if, if you walk in some of the circles that some of us walk in, all your MDivs and your doctorates of ministry and your theological books and your all, it's nothing. It's vapor, as King Solomon would say. It's vapor. It's nice. We can learn. It can be a blessing. It has such little eternal value in the end. And I forget which theologian. He has an impressive name. He wrote many books. People celebrate him. And I've got to remember which one it was. But when someone asked him what the most profound theological statement he ever heard was, he said, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And he had written books and had immense scholarship and said words I don't understand yet. But when he was asked as an older man, what's the most profound theological statement he's ever heard? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you know who taught me that? My mother. Can I see a show of hands to the people who know their mothers taught them that as well? Who learned Jesus loves me from their mother? Strange how that works, isn't it? So um, I'm just going to wrap up real quick, but I do want to take time. Well, I'm going to pray first, and then I'd like to take, uh, we're going to have some time to celebrate mothers in a little bit. But before, before I pray, I do want to just say, I was blessed with an incredible, incredibly godly mother. I had a very godly grandmother, Nancy Johnson, who was amazing. I have a very ethical and moral grandmother in Hazel Cox, right? They make a mark on me. They did. They do. I say things sometimes, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, my grandmother said that. It's neat. You'd be surprised how much stuff you hear me say up here actually came from my grandmother or my mother. And it's possible it might even come from my wife's grandmother. Grandma Betty, or from my mother-in-law, or from my wife. I quote my daughter a lot, too. She doesn't like it when I do that. But can I tell you how blessed I feel that my daughter on Mother's Day is in church with her mom and her grandmother and her aunt. My nieces and nephews have that same thing going on. They're in church this morning on Mother's Day with their mother and their grandmother, and their great-grandmother. That is neat. 
Can you think of anything more beautiful than that, really? If you can have four generations of Christians sitting together in the same church pews, if that doesn't, could I quote that little guy from the Ray Vanderland conference? If that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Anyway, if you can do so without pain, can you stand with me? Father God, I thank you for the truth of your words. I thank you for your son. I thank you for salvation. I pray that we would not lose our first joy, but that we would keep pressing towards being more sanctified people in deeper community, that we would take the opportunities to lead by example and disciple our children and to disciple other people's children and to help to polish each other's faith. Father God, I pray that you would bless the rest of the time that we have together. I pray that you would abundantly bless all these mothers today. As we think about the mothers that have already gone and the mothers that we already have, Lord, pray that you would bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Funny enough, I learned that this is the lowest, and I forget where I picked this up from, but it was yesterday I heard someone say this. Mother's Day it has the lowest crime rate of any day in the nation. Strange how that works, isn't it? You didn't even know mothers were committing all those crimes. <laughs> uh, at this time... Um, Chad Keeler is going to come up and uh, lead us in our time of announcements, prayer, and sharing.